You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Acts chapter 2. Father, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for the coming of Jesus. We're grateful, Lord, even that he ascended into heaven and sent forth the Holy Spirit unto the church. And now, Lord, as we read about these things in the book of Acts, lift up our hearts, lift up our minds, Lord, to receive what you have to give to us. We thank you for your presence with us here. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we open up the book of Acts this morning, at Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 14. And we're at that critical place where the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church There's been some remarkable and you might even say strange phenomenon. The sound of a rushing mighty wind. The phenomenon of something above the head of each one of the 120 disciples who were there gathered. Something that could only be described as as like a flame of fire. And then this spontaneous ability given to each one of them to praise God in a previously unknown language to each one of them. But, but after all of that phenomenon, and once it had caught the notice of the crowd, and the crowd had noticed, especially this strange phenomenon of these people being able to spontaneously speak in languages that they did not know previously, now Peter stands up in the midst of them, verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now again, we find it very significant that as Peter begins to preach right now, he's not working against the Holy Spirit. He's doing the Spirit's work. It's not like the Holy Spirit time stops when Peter begins to preach, right? All right, turn off the Holy Spirit. Now the preaching comes. No, this is what the Holy Spirit had been pushing towards. This is exactly what he wanted to happen. And so this spontaneous expression of praise and worship in these unknown languages, that ceases, that fades and turns off in the background. Now Peter is holding forth in the one language that everybody there knew together in common. And that's this ancient form of the Greek language that they called Koine Greek. This language universal among the Roman Empire at that time. And he raised his voice with great boldness, with great passion, he began to speak to them this amazing sermon that we're going to take a look at this morning, the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Now, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he he didn't teach as the rabbis in his day usually did. They they, they gathered disciples around them. The the teacher would sit down, the disciples would stand, and and they would instruct them and any who might listen and always refer back to the other rabbis and sort of have a little theological school. That isn't the ambiance of this at all. Peter's like a holy messenger. He's proclaiming something to all the assembled crowd. And what I find remarkable about this message, and I say this as a preacher, what I find remarkable about this message, it had no preparation for it, right? Peter did not wake up that morning thinking that he was going to preach to anybody, much less that he was going to preach to thousands of people, probably in the very vicinity of the Temple Mount. No, this message was spontaneously given. But on the other hand, I don't want to say that there was no preparation for this sermon. I think there were years of preparation and spiritual work into this sermon, right? 
I mean, hadn't God been working this in Peter's life his whole life, and especially the last three years that he had walked around ministering with Jesus and as a close follower of Jesus? Hadn't all that time that was poured into Peter and all the, 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 what he had learned about the Bible directly from Jesus and all that he had learned about the spiritual life and all that he had seen worked into him by the, the, the working of the gospel, all of that was coming out right now. Some people, some, some, they'll ask me, well, how long did it take you to prepare that message? And since I've been doing this a long time, sometimes I'll say, what well, took me 20 years to prepare that message? Because it, it, it may have come fairly quickly in the, in the final fruit of it. But what God pours into you in the meantime and through the years leading up to it, well, that's exactly what we see going on with Peter's life right now. It flowed spontaneously out of his life that was sent very closely with Jesus and out of a mind that thought about the things of God deeply and believed in God deeply. And by the way, something else to remember about this message of Peter in Acts chapter 2 is that it's actually a small portion of what Peter actually said. I mean, I don't blame somebody for reading through this passage. Really, it basically goes from verse 14 through verse 36 that Peter preached to them. And they read through that and they say, well, pastor, that took me about four minutes to read through that. Why do you preach for 40 minutes? (laughs) But then I always draw their attention to verse 40 of chapter 2. Could you look at that? Verse 40 of chapter 2, it says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, (laughs) saying, right? So you can put this in the category of my many other words, right? Well, this is the case with all the the, the sermons in the Bible virtually. is what we have is we have spirit-inspired abridgments of everything that was said, right? What the Holy Spirit wanted recorded forever in God's eternal word, that particular slice is given to us accurately in the word of God. But what was actually said by Peter on the day of Pentecost, it lasted much longer than the four or five minutes that it took him to say these particular words. But he began that message, if you notice, going back to verse 14 and 15. He begins by saying, listen, they're not drunk. Peter deflected the mocking criticism that the disciples were drunk because in that day it was unthinkable that people would be so drunk so early in the day. By the way, I do just want you to notice something. Peter did not tell that multitude on the day of Pentecost, some filled with honest inquirers, some filled with mockers. Peter did not tell them, well, of course we're drunk. We're drunk with the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that, right? Matter of fact, he said, no, we're not drunk. What you see here can't be described as drunkenness. That's a false charge. And then he went on to proclaim verse 16. Here we get into the meat of it. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now let's just pause right there before I read verse 17. We'll rewind just for a second here. Just to say that in the sermon that Peter will now preach, he's preaching his sermon based on three Old Testament passages. He's going to bring up to us Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, and then later on Psalm 110. And from his exposition, his understanding of these three passages, he's going to explain to us what they were seeing and what the importance of it was for them. By the way, before we get into what Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, can I just, this is remarkable. In the midst of this tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God doing remarkable things. I mean, something electric, something spontaneous and exciting and thrilling is happening right there in the day of Pentecost. Peter says, hey, everybody, let's have a Bible study. 
Open up your Bibles to the book of Joel, chapter 2, is what he said. That's what he told them to do. And so that's what they, they're thinking about this. It's really wonderful how Peter insists that this is all in line with the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I suppose that it's possible that you could have a, a, a preacher who, who is so devoid of the Spirit of God, so, so dry of any kind of unction of the Holy Spirit, that, that when he opens up the Bible, the Holy Spirit time stops. But that would be a rarity. Here the work, the ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit just continues on, right? It continues on as Peter, Peter opens up his Bible. And again, starting at verse 16 again, he says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now again, as I said before, this introduces the first of three Old Testament passages. And as he quotes the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, he's quoting from a passage in Joel where God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. I find it very interesting that Joel, in the book of Joel, mostly prophesied about judgment that was coming upon Israel. That was Joel's bigger theme. God is sending judgment to Israel. You guys got to get ready for this. But it's as if it's in the, these Old Testament books, especially the minor prophets, where God promises judgment after judgment. It's as if God can't leave them with that taste in their mouth. So oftentimes in these books where God really lays down and announces his judgment, you'll find the most beautiful prophecies of a coming, beautiful, renewing work and outpouring of the Spirit. Because God says, if I'm going to tell them the bad news, I've got to give them hope for the good news as well. And so in the prophet Joel, which basically is a downer book, he has this beautiful passage where God promises this wonderful outpouring of the Spirit that will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what Peter says, he says, what happened on the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel's promise with the final fulfillment of this all coming in the last days. I mean, isn't that what he says in verse 17? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The idea biblically of the last days is that this is the time or the season of the Messiah. It encompasses both his humble coming and his return in glory. And because Jesus had already come in humility, now they were aware that his coming in glory could come at any time. Now, friends, you and I know, I don't think Peter knew it at the time, but you and I know that there would be some 2,000 years from the time that Peter spoke those words until Jesus will return. And at this point, all of human history had been rushing towards the point of God's ultimate establishment of his kingdom on earth. But now you could say, after all that time leading up to the cross, rushing towards that point of fulfillment, now, since the cross... It's up to the edge of that fulfillment. Now it runs parallel along the edge of that fulfillment, ready to go at any time that God would desire. 
In the midst of this, this greater season of the last times, it was a way of Joel and for Peter to express to that gathered crowd, these are new covenant times. This is the time when God is pouring out the new covenant upon his people. By the way, it may also be helpful to see that the last days are something as a season, a general period of time, more than a specific period, such as seven days or a week or something like that. In the whole span of God's plan for human history, we are in the last days. And in part of that promise, as a part of this age of grace, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, in using this quotation from Joel, Peter explained what the curious onlookers already saw, that the Holy Spirit had come upon these people. And before the Holy Spirit was given, but he was given in drops, so to speak. Now he's poured forth and upon all flesh. Think about this. If you're one of the onlookers on the day of Pentecost, there you see these 120 people very evidently filled with the Spirit of God. They're speaking spontaneously in languages that they did not know. Maybe that this strange phenomenon that could only be described as a flame of fire was still above every head. We don't know exactly. But there was just something about the whole scene that made those people say, there's something very different about those people. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And what would have shocked them about it was all of them were filled. Well, look, there's women there and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's common people and they're filled. There's some high and mighty and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It looks like some rich people are filled with the Spirit. It looks like some poor people are filled with the Spirit. It looks like some smart people are filled with the Spirit. And some not so smart people are filled with the Spirit. (laughs) They'd look and they'd be astounded that all of these 120 disciples, all of them, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter's trying to explain. This was prophesied by Joel as part of the new covenant, as part of God's blessing in the last days. The Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. And this was a glorious emphasis on Pentecost. I'll say it again, that under the old covenant, certain people at certain times for specific purposes, were filled with the Holy Spirit. But now, under the new covenant, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Even men's servants and maid servants, even young men and old men. It's for everybody. Matter of fact, he makes this beautiful conclusion here, verse 21, where he says, And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, Peter was also beginning to use this prophecy from Joel for an evangelistic purpose. See, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit meant that God was now offering salvation in a way that was previously unknown to whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whether they're Jew or Gentile. You see, before the new covenant, it wasn't exactly like this. Salvation didn't come to whoever called upon the name of the Lord. Salvation came to whoever called upon the name of the Lord and put themselves under the law of Moses. Well, then salvation could come unto you. But now, under the new covenant, that's done with. Now it's whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And even though it would still be many years until the gospel was offered to Gentiles, yet Peter's sermon and his text announced that gospel invitation by saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And once you see Peter, under the beautiful inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does a brilliant thing in his preaching. The first thing he does, he says, you see this strange phenomenon. Let me explain it to you. It's the filling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as was promised by the prophet Joel. Okay, now that you understand this, let me tell you that salvation is open to all now under the new covenant. And now he begins to explain and get to the focus of his sermon, the resurrected Jesus. That begins here now in verse 22 where he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. By the way, I just like that. I love Peter as a preacher. Look back at verse 14. He says, Men of Judah and all those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. At the very beginning of his message, he says, Hey, everybody, listen to me. And then halfway through the sermon again in verse 22, Hey, everybody, listen to me. Peter knew how important it was to get the, inte- the attention of your audience and to grab onto it. And by the way, I like it that just Peter went on preaching here, starting at verse 22. When he said, men of Israel, hear these words, there are a lot of people who would have thought that it would be enough for Peter to just bring up the quotation from Joel, considering all that we have in it. I mean, after all, Joel talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He talked about miraculous dreams and visions and prophecy. He talked about signs and wonders regarding the day of the Lord. And he gave an invitation to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. Wouldn't you almost think that Peter would end the message after verse 21? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what I invite you to do right now, brothers. Let's pray. You would have thought that that would be enough. Peter says, no, that's not enough. Because as beautiful and as powerful as that quotation was from Joel chapter 2, it was just the beginning. You know what he has not told them about? He hasn't told them about Jesus, right? He hasn't really explained to them who Jesus is, what he came to do. And that's what he endeavors to do, starting now again at verse 22, where he says, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Wow. What Peter said before wasn't enough. He hadn't yet started to talk about Jesus. But now when he does, he does it with amazing boldness. Don't you just almost get a shiver at the boldness of Peter here? This man who just a few weeks before was denying that he even knew who Jesus was in the presence of a little servant girl who was questioning. Now he stands up before a crowd of thousands of people. And since I believe they're in the vicinity of the temple courts, there they are in the shadow of the very Jewish and Roman leaders Because, of course, the temple was the headquarter of the Jewish, you know, religious leaders. And right there at the temple courts, you know what you had overlooking the temple courts? You had a Roman fortress called Fortress Antonia. You were there in the shadow of the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. What does Peter say? I can't believe that he even said this. He says this in verse 23. You've taken by lawless hands and have crucified and have put to death. What amazing boldness. 
So he told them, pay attention. And he called their minds to what they already know. By the way, did you notice that? He says this in verse 22. He says this, as you yourselves also know. You guys know this. What Jesus did, it wasn't in a corner. You've heard the reports. You know what he did. I'm not telling you about anything that you haven't heard before. You know about this man, Jesus, and you know the great things he did. And then he said, even though Jesus lived this amazing life, that is an amazing life, verse 22, isn't it? A man attested to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. As you yourselves know, verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Wow. Peter knew that Jesus' death was in the plan of God. Oh, he knew that those Roman leaders and those Jewish leaders, they all had their role in it, and their all role that they would be responsible, that they had in the responsibility of the execution of Jesus Christ. Peter knew that very well. But he knew that even beyond human responsibility, there was a divine initiative, a divine foreknowledge, a predetermined plan that the Son of God would come, that he would add humanity to his deity, and that he would come as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But Peter didn't flinch at saying it. He didn't flinch at saying, you crucified this man whom God sent. I have to say one of the most glorious things about Peter, the preacher in this passage, is that he was not a man who was overly concerned about pleasing his audience, was he? No. No, he was going to tell them the truth. He was going to stand before them as a divine herald and tell them exactly the truth. And if the truth was that they were sinners who had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus, then he would tell them that. And this spirit-filled Peter was a much different man than the Peter who had just denied knowing Jesus just a couple of months before. But then I love what he says in verse 24. You put him to death, but God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, he's going to develop this thought. And so even though I want to talk about this right now, I'm going to wait until he touches on it a little bit later. But I love that idea that it was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. It just couldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened that way. It was impossible of it. So now he's going to explain that very thought right there. But before he does, look at this one more time in verse 24, where he says he was not possible having loosed the pains of death. That's a very interesting phrase that he uses in the ancient Greek language. The pains of death. The word for pains there is actually the word you would use to translate labor pains. Pains in giving birth. And you could say this, if you want to put a little funny twist on, you could say that in this sense, the tomb was like a womb for Jesus. Just like a baby can't stay in the womb, right? Jesus could not stay in that grave. Nobody had to come out of the tomb just as much as a baby has to come out of the womb. And the Redeemer did exactly that. But now explaining this idea, he's going to begin here at verse 25 where he says... For David said concerning him, again now quoting from Psalm 16, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. 
For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Okay, now right there ends Peter's quotation of Psalm 16. Now starting at verse 29, he's going to begin to explain it. He says this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this, which you now see and hear. Now, Peter recognized that though this psalm spoke of David, we're speaking of Psalm 16, It spoke of someone greater than David. It spoke of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And I love the quotation that he gives there when he talks about your Holy One. Verse 27, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Peter's simple point is this. Guys, look, we know something. We know that David's dead and buried. They even have what is thought to be, I don't think it actually is, but it's said to be, the tomb of David there in Jerusalem. Well, there it is. He's dead and buried. He's among us. But this is what you need to know, is that David could not have been speaking ultimately about himself, but speaking prophetically of his much greater descendant, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Christ. And it is absolutely true of him that he was the Holy One of God. Now, friends, think about this. Think about Jesus there on the cross, nailed to those cruel beams. And as Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross, he bore it as if he were a guilty sinner, guilty of all of our sin, even being made sin for us, as Paul so carefully and precisely says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And think of it there. There Jesus is there on the cross, bearing the sin. Yet did he become a sinner? Was that a bad thing he did on the cross? No, it was a glorious thing. It was the most loving thing that has ever been done on the face of planet Earth. You see, it was the most holy, giving act of love that has ever been seen. So that Jesus did not become a sinner when he bore our sin, even though he bore the full guilt of our sin He remained God's Holy One. And friends, that is the gospel message, that Jesus took our punishment on the cross. And even though He did that, He remained a perfect Savior throughout the whole ordeal, proved by His resurrection. Do you understand that apart from the resurrection, we would have no proof that Jesus successfully, perfectly paid for our sins? I could put it to you this way. Oh, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. How do you know it worked? How do you know the transaction was approved? 
How do you know that Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross? How do you know that Jesus didn't blaspheme God under the weight of the terrible judgment that was being placed upon him? Many men have done worse under less circumstances. How do you know? This is how you know. Because he rose from the dead. And the fact that he rose from the dead shows that he remained God's Holy One. As he quotes here in the verse, verse 27, he says, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You see, Jesus bore our sin without becoming a sinner. And therefore, he remained the Holy One even in his death. And since it's impossible that God's Holy One should be bound by death, the resurrection was absolutely inevitable. He couldn't rot in a grave. So there's Jesus taken down from the cross and wrapped in the burial clothes and placed in the tomb. And it's as if God looked down from heaven and he said, well, that's not right. He didn't do anything wrong. He only pleased me. He only obeyed me. He only loved me. It's not right that that man should be subject to death. So he will be raised from the dead. Matter of fact, that puts it far too simplistically. Because one of the fascinating things when you go through the New Testament is you find out who is responsible for the resurrection of Jesus. And I can show you a passage that says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And I can show you a passage that says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then I can show you a passage that says that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Who did it? Well, they were all in on it. Every one of them. But the bottom line is that it is impossible that the Son of God should remain dead. You see, instead of being punished... For his glorious work on the cross, Jesus was rewarded as prophetically described in the psalm where it says, verse 28, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. That's why Peter can say, listen, you guys know that David is both dead and buried. This can't be speaking of its human author. It must be pointing towards the divine author, Jesus Christ. And that's why he can say, and I almost can't believe that Peter said this. I can't believe where he says, getting here in verse, uh, come on now. Let me look at my Bible and see where the verse is. Verse 30, then the prophet, foreseeing, spoke of the rest. Uh, this, uh, verse 32. <laughs> this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. You tried to kill him. God wouldn't allow it. God raised him up. He's raised up from the dead. And then finally he makes the point in verse 30. Three, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see in here. You guys thought that you could end the ministry of Jesus. You thought that you could crucify Him. God wouldn't allow it to work. He raised Him from the dead. And you know what? He's still working. He ascended to heaven and now we poured out this which you see now. This remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what you see. And notice what he says here, starting at verse 34. He's going to quote one more Old Testament passage. First, he quoted Joel chapter 2. Then he quoted Psalm 16. Now he's going to quote one third one, which is very interesting, starting at verse 34. He said, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, now quoting from Psalm 110, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your footstool. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm dying to talk about verse 36, but I need to begin with verses 34 and 35, because this quotation from Psalm 110 is very important. You see, Psalm 110 is an Old Testament passage that is either quoted or referred to more times in the New Testament than any other passage. Any other passage. Some people say either 25 or 30 times this passage is either quoted or referred to in the New Testament. And what is this psalm all about? Well, this verse from this psalm, as it's applied to a New Testament context, is all about showing that Jesus is God. You see, in the psalm, King David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded that Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, the Lord, as it's written in my Bible, with all those small capitals, the Lord spoke to David's Lord, my Lord, as God. In other words, if I could put it there and just put it in short, the Father called the Son God. Friends, can I tell you something? If the Father calls the Son God, that ends the debate for me. Is Jesus God? If the Father calls Him God, that's good enough for me. And if the Father calls the Son God, then what we have in the Messiah is no mere human superman. What we have in the Messiah is a divine Messiah. We have God made man. And Peter used this passage to show that the Messiah, who is the focus of Psalm 110, is in fact divine, that he is God. Now, this would have been mind-blowing because there were some Jewish rabbis who thought this and taught this and speculated on this. There's no doubt about it. But listen, it would have blown the minds of ancient Israel to be confronted with this so, so starkly. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, not only was the Messiah, but he was the divine Messiah. He is God-made man. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And then he says what I can't believe he said in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now listen, you have to admire Peter's plain speaking. His sermon concludes with a summary. All Israel should know that even though that they crucified Jesus, God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ. It's as if Peter said this, you were all wrong about Jesus. You, you crucified him as if he were a criminal. But by the resurrection, God proved that he is Lord and Messiah. And again, I want to call your mind something that Peter was preaching to very powerfully here. He was exalting Jesus as God. Look at Jesus, he said, with his work on the cross. Look at Jesus, victorious over death in the empty tomb. And then he would say, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus as the divine Messiah, the Lord God. Look at what he says right there in verse 36. That he has made him both Lord 
and God. Now, when Peter said in verse 21, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then when he says in verse 36 that God has made Jesus Lord and God. Do you see what he's telling him to do? When you call upon the name of the Lord, who are you calling upon? You're calling upon Jesus. And the fact that Peter repeatedly used this term to refer to Jesus, calling him Lord and Lord and Lord, it means something very powerful. Because in the Bible translation that they used in that day, they... In the common works, in the common vernacular, they didn't read the Bible in Hebrew. Oh, they they had the Bible in Hebrew. They read it in Hebrew. But it wasn't the common translation that they used. The common translation that they used was a Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew. And do you know how God is most uh, commonly referred to in that ancient Greek translation? With the same word, Lord. Over and over again. Make no mistake about it. When the early Christians gave Jesus that title, Lord, it meant everything to them. They were saying, He is God. It's right from the pages of our very own Bible. So I stand back from this and say, say, Peter, you knew exactly what you were doing. You stood up there and spontaneously on the day of Pentecost, you preached a great message. First you brought in the prophet Joel to explain to them what they were seeing with the strange phenomenon that this wasn't weird, this was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was for everybody and it meant that now they were part of the new covenant. Then you brought up that great passage from Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus rose from the dead and it was impossible that he would not be raised from the dead. But then that wasn't enough. He still had to bring before them Jesus as he is the divine Messiah. And that's why starting at verse 34, he quotes Psalm 110, exalting Jesus as the divine Messiah. Friends, make no mistake about it. What Peter was doing to them or for them was preaching to them Jesus again and again and again. That is the message that the world needs to hear. Listen, it's, it's the end of the year, right? Next time we get together on a Sunday, we're going to be into a new year. And around the new year is a time everybody likes to make resolutions, right? You're going to do it different this year. You're going to eat better this new year, aren't you? And you're going to, you're going to get out and exercise the way that you should, right? Isn't it remarkable how uh, uh, memberships at the gym swell at the new year, right? You can't find a parking place at the gym for the first couple weeks of the new year, right? Don't worry, just stick with it. It'll thin out. It does every year. Oh, it's going to be different. We're all into self-help and improving ourselves and this and that. I just want you to understand, Peter did not preach Jesus as a self-help program. He preached Jesus as a Savior, as the divine Messiah that they needed to put their trust in. That's how we presented him. And we need to be careful. No, people are looking for help. And Jesus wants to bring them help. And Jesus wants to help people's lives. And he wants to help your life. But I tell you, it begins by not seeing Jesus as a self-help program. It starts by seeing Jesus as the divine Messiah who's risen from the dead. Now, do you understand... If you know that message, 
you live in the midst of people who don't. Some of them don't know anything about Jesus. Some of them know a little bit. But very few of them know the content of this kind of message that Peter preached to them. And I'm asking you, in some sense, to be a preacher. Not necessarily what I'm doing right now. But what I'm saying is, although, praise God, if he would raise up more and more of those in our midst, right? But listen, what I'm saying is, God has given you an opportunity to spread this message in whatever field he's given you. And to tell them about what they really need about Jesus. About who he is and what he has done for them. Oh yes, Jesus does want to help them. Jesus does want to make their life better. I don't doubt that in the slightest. But he does it. He does it through the power of what he did on the cross. He does it through the power of the empty tomb. And he does it in particular in the power because he is God's divine Messiah. I look at this great sermon of Peter's and I say that it's a reminder to me and it's a reminder to everybody of how we need to preach Jesus to this world. Now, I think about what follows in the coming verses. And we're not going to really get to it this morning. We've got uh, some real gold nuggets for us in the passage ahead where it talks about the amazing response that there was to Peter's message. Because I think that when Peter breathed out after saying what he said at the end of verse 36, that that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, when Peter stopped saying that and waited for a reaction from the crowd, Peter probably wondered if the next words were not going to be, crucify him. How dare he say that to us? How dare he say that about us? Peter didn't flinch in saying it, nor should we. People, you, you've got a, a problem that needs to be set right with God. And, and I'll, I'll give you some good news. At its core, the problem is not even of your making. At its core, the problem is because you are a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. At its core, the problem isn't even of your making, but it's your problem nonetheless. And Jesus came to deliver you from your sin problem. I don't know if you've ever called it a sin problem in your life. Maybe you've called it weakness. Maybe you called it human frailty. Maybe you just said nobody's perfect, on and on. But listen, you know what I mean. You just look inside your own life, inside your own heart right now. And when I say sin problem, you know exactly what I mean. And Jesus came and did his work on the cross and showed that it was victorious by the empty tomb. And he's enthroned in heaven right now to deal with your sin problem and to make you right with God and to order everything in your life properly after that. I just want to rededicate myself all over again to preaching that message. Now, when I look at the great result there was from this on the day of Pentecost, which we will look at next time, I say, wow, that's marvelous. And I have to say, one of the things that heartened me in the few months that we've been here is how many people have come to Jesus. How many people have made professions of faith. How many people, both in the outreaches that we've done in the community and things right here on Sunday morning and many other things that we've done other places, people are coming to faith. That excites me. It makes me more dedicated than ever to say, this, this is the message that we preach. That's a message I bring to you this morning. 
wouldn't it be a great thing for you to do this last Sunday of the year to make your profession of faith in Jesus Christ?